The following is a conversation with Joseph Brown, founder of Heresy Financial. Joseph spent nearly five years in the financial services industry and witnessed too many people paying high fees for bad advice. Heresy Financial exists to assist people in learning how money works so that they can control their financial security. He provides the education needed to prepare for the coming economic storms and produces actionable content that goes against the conventional grain. Joseph is quoted saying, to the establishment, we are heretics. To the masses, we are fools. But when the world's economies fall to pieces around us, the ones who do what the majority do not will be the only ones left standing. Joseph's YouTube channel, Heresy Financial, has over 174,000 subscribers and has accumulated over 25 million views. A good friend of mine shared Joseph's work with me. I found his knowledge and ability to articulate complex financial topics in a simple way that's refreshing and informative. Personal finance and money are topics oftentimes ignored and viewed in a negative light. Our schools and educational systems do not educate our youth or adults on how money works, and as a result, many never achieve financial freedom. I believe that if you make the poor and middle class prosper, you will have a better world, a cleaner environment, less crime, and improved physical, emotional, and mental health. You are listening to the Co-Movement Gym Podcast, where we inspire people to move and live courageously. If you are enjoying this content, please support our sponsors in the description. I thank each and every one of you for being on this journey with us. Now, please enjoy the show. Folks, listen up. I want to take a brief moment and thank our podcast show sponsors. Lombardi Chiropractic, Native Path Supplements, and Redmond Life. Lombardi Chiropractic has been my personal chiropractor for 10 years and has kept my body strong and healthy. Native Path Supplements are used by numerous co-movement clients and our coaching team here at the facility. I highly recommend that you try their chocolate, collagen, peptides. I was made aware of Redmond Life by one of our trainers here at the facility. He recommended I try Relight Electrolyte Powder. This supplement has dramatically improved my afternoon energy levels and overall hydration. I'd like to thank these three companies for providing outstanding service and products that make our society healthier and more resilient. Mention the Cold Movement Gym Podcast when you call Lombardi Chiropractic, and not only will they treat you like family, they will provide a nice, enticing discount to all listeners. And use code COMO15, that's C-O-M-O-15, at checkout when shopping at nativepath.com or redmond.life and receive 15% off all your orders. Your support to our show sponsors assists in us paying for expenses and continuing to provide content we hope you all enjoy. Joe, welcome to the Co-Movement Gym Podcast. How you doing, buddy? Very good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, man. I've been following your channel here for for a little bit, and uh, I'm really, really interested in the work that you're doing, um, your knowledge with finance, and I'm even more interested to talk to you now, knowing that you come from a very um, successful background in terms of weight loss, and you're very interested in health. And so I want to kick off this podcast conversation today with some statistics that um, are sort of disheartening and concerning to me. 
half of Americans die broke. 57% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. 87% of people have no fulfillment in their job. The top 0.1% are worth about the same as the bottom 90%. The median net worth of a family in the U.S. is $121,000. The top 1% is $11 million. 42% of Americans say money negatively affects their mental health. The average student loan debt is $40,000. The average person has $5,500 in negative equity with their car. The average new car payment is $700 a month, and the average credit card debt is $6,194. And so, hence why we're talking today, Joe. You're a financial expert. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned with these numbers. They seem to be getting worse. Um, you know, I'm very interested in, in my background as a, you know, a personal trainer and a health coach, seeing the correlation with financial stress and how it affects um, their, the physical and mental health side of things. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. And th those statistics uh, are just a, a bummer way to start anything, right? I mean, it's like you, a, a, a negative outlook. And that's why I do what I do, because I think that uh, financial literacy is uh, is foundational to success in, uh, in, in really any area of life. Um, and so I want to teach people how money works so that people can make more um, and not make more just for the sake of making more, but so that people can keep more because we've all heard of lottery winners and ath professional athletes that are broke two years later, three years later. So it's about making more, but it's also about keeping more. But again, not to become a miser, but number three, to be able to give more, because ultimately that is the, uh, I think the foundational purpose of mankind is to create a better world for everybody around us as much as possible. And so um, everything that you're talking about there, all those stats, that's, uh, that's a world in slavery. And mm -hmm. we are designed as people to be masters of our environment, not to be slaves to it. So, um, so that's uh, maybe what we can uh, what we can get into in this podcast is uh, is helping turn people around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know that you worked in the financial services industry for for quite a while, and then you got out and you started doing your own thing. I'm interested why, as an entrepreneur, I've worked 13 years uh, for myself. And you are, you're doing that now too successfully. And so why did you get out of the, the financial sector um, from an employment standpoint? A couple of reasons. So if you would have talked to me when I was in college, I would have told you, I want to work for myself. I want to have my own business. I want to be an entrepreneur. And then you would say, okay, well, doing what? What kind of business? And the answer is, I have no idea. I have no skills, nothing to offer, no no product to uh, sell. Um, all I know is, you know, that is the end goal for me. Um, but th that was, you know, uh, a pie in the sky kind of idea because as a as a kid, you literally don't have uh, have anything uh, of value to be able to offer the world. Uh, I knew though one asset that I had was uh, being able to learn quickly and work hard. Like I just knew the people around me. I knew the the best and brightest around me. And I said, okay, I can outwork them and I can learn faster than them. And so um, in whatever I try, I can, I can compete and be at the top of top of that game. Um, and uh, I was at that point when I graduated, I've got married two weeks after I graduated college between my wife and I, mostly my, my fault. I, we had $30,000 debt. 
Um, and uh, at that time, I was making less than minimum wage. Um, and so I knew we needed to dig ourselves out of that financial hole. Um, I started reading books about personal money management and I fell in love. Um, and so I talked to a buddy of mine who was a uh, stockbroker and he said, hey, look, I can help you get a job as a broker trainee. Uh, you can get licensed. You can come up through the ranks. You can start off, you know, kind of uh, as this customer service role and just, uh, you know, move into it from there. So uh, I did that. I thought, you know, this is the best way to learn about how money works and how to invest and how to get myself set financially is by going into the belly of the beast. Um, and uh, for a while, that was true. It was to a certain extent, it was, you know, learning the basics about money and investing and, uh, you know, the mechanics of how the financial markets work. Uh, but at a certain point, I started to realize that things weren't adding up in terms of like, what investments we had to recommend to people and sell to people and why and where that comes from. And um, the understanding about why markets move the way they do from things like monetary policy. And so I, I kind of ran to the, got to the end of the road from, you know, inside the machine. So I had to, I basically just started reading books um, uh, out, you know, that, that I had found about how money works and how the economy works. And, um, Got to a point where I realized the stuff I, I couldn't keep on selling what I was selling in good faith anymore with integrity. Mm. And I had always wanted to work for myself. I had always wanted to do my own thing. And uh, also, I was kind of at the end of the road with how much money I could make. I was kind of at the top of the ladder um, in a sales position, uh, making the best money I'd ever made, but I was miserable. Um, I didn't like, you know, uh, having to, you know, wake up early, go work for somebody else, dial 200 dials a day um, and, you know, see a, an ex uh, extremely small percentage of the value that I thought that I was creating for the company. So uh, that's when I decided to quit. Um, started a YouTube channel, a podcast, wrote some books, you know, one, one myself, uh, one self-published adults book, and then a couple children's books, like I, you know, consulting, like I did literally everything I could think of. And, uh, my YouTube channel was the one that kind of, uh, took off first. And so I started focusing on, uh, focusing on that. So learned a ton through that, but even though it took a year and a half before I could even make enough money to pay my, uh, bills, <laughs> I was on a negative cash flow for a year and a half. Um, I would never go back and do it differently. It's, you know, even, even the sleepless nights, uh, were, were more worth it than the miserable mornings beforehand. <laughs> so, uh, that's my story in a nutshell and how I got to where I am today. Yeah, that's a true entrepreneurial story right there, right? Like that just that knowing in your heart you want to be doing something for yourself, providing value for people, but then that struggle to get from being employed to working full-time for yourself and being successful with that. You mentioned a year and a half of struggle. Um, I did the same thing. So um, yeah, but it's it's well worth it, absolutely. You know, I'm very interested to see see what you think, because both you and I are very intrigued with having money work for us, okay? Um, when I was 23 years old, my wife and I at the time, we had a, a negative $112,000 net worth, okay? Negative, 112000 okay? Student Fantastic. loans, vehicles, credit card debt, right? You can get there pretty quick right. with two people, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad <laughs> by Robert Kiyosaki. And then I read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And ever since then, like my world changed completely. So I, I'm very interested to see what you think, why the poor and the middle class keep getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. What is the common denominator there? Um, 
I, I have my own opinion with that, but I'm very interested to see what what you think in terms of that. A uh, couple answers. Okay, so the first thing that I would say is uh, I, I would it's it's two sides of the same coin here. So I'm not saying one is bigger than the other because they feed on each other. They're both they're both symptoms of each other's problems. One of them is monetary policy. So when you look at the way the system is designed, it incentivizes or creates a natural flow of money to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is the fiat monetary system that we have today is built on debt. So in, there's been money that's been backed by gold. There's today we have money backed by debt. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so that is the United States Treasury. So we have, uh, you know, if you pay, basically, if you follow it back and every loan gets repaid, there's zero money left in the system. That's yep. money is built on built on debt. Um, and so when you have a system that's built on debt, that means that debt is incentivized which means that it's an inflationary monetary system. So money is worth more today than it is in the future. So if I can spend more money today and I can pay it back with future dollars, it's cheaper for me to get those dollars in the future than it is today. And by cheaper, I mean how much stuff, how much wealth you need to command to be able to get that same amount of money. So today it might take a whole day's labor to get, let's say, $100 for somebody. Um, But in the future, it might take uh, half a day's labor to get $100. So if you can borrow $100 today, that means you didn't have to do any labor to get that $100 because you borrowed it. And then in the future, you only have to do a half a day's labor to pay that back. Well, that's a good deal. And that's how the system is designed. And so corporations, households, and governments load up with debt and then pay it back with dollars that are worth less in the future. Um, Now, the other side of the coin is uh, financial literacy. So Mm -hmm. Part of it comes down to how that debt is used. So what are you using that debt for? If you're using that debt to buy assets, well, then you're going to get unbelievably wealthy over a long period of time. If you use that debt to buy consumable goods, you're going to get unbelievably poor over a long period of time. Um, and, uh, And so I think the biggest difference is how they navigate the system, which comes down to financial literacy. But when you play that out to its end, if everybody knew how money worked and started making better financial decisions, there wouldn't be all these large economic problems today. And the system would actually not be built on debt. It would be built on sound money. And so they're both two sides of the same coin. It's the system, but the system is created by individual choices, uh, ultimately. And so that's that's where we're at today. And I think that's the biggest reason why we keep on seeing the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So let's break that down a little farther um, for people, especially the beginners. So you had said that the rich are purchasing uh, assets, um, generally assets that cash flow, and they go up in value as inflation increases, right? So they ride that wave. Um, you mentioned consumable consumable goods, so liabilities, right? So the poor and middle class buy a, li- a lot of liabilities. And so in times of inflation, those liabilities are not going up in price. They're decreasing in price, right? So can you give some examples of some assets and then some examples of liabilities? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is where... <laughs> Uh, the, the classic, uh, the classic line here is there's levels to this shit. So there's yeah. different things that you need to do to get from poor to middle class that will keep you middle class, 
Um, and then different things you need to do that'll take you from middle class to wealthy um, that wouldn't work to get you from poor to, to middle class, right? So like uh, a good example, I think uh, Andrew Hormozzi talked about this is like, if you want to become a billionaire and you go and ask a billionaire what he does every day, it's like, oh, I can't get, get in my private jet. I do my mm-hmm. sauna. I do my cold plunge. I do, you know, all these things. There are habits that that people do once they're rich. They didn't do that to get rich. Um, and so uh, it's like if you want to go on vacation, you don't try and replicate the habits of somebody on vacation. You have to replicate the habits of somebody who got to the vacation place first. Um, and so when we talk about uh, when I, in my mind, when I think of like the the, the poorest, I'm thinking of somebody who is, um, you know, food stamps, um, can't even qualify, that has no credit card, um, maybe doesn't even have a bank account. They're, you know, taking their paychecks to uh those uh those those corner stores, the the check places where they, you know, take a 30% haircut to get their uh their uh paycheck in cash uh advance. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, renting, uh potentially section A, you know, they're you're you know, I'm talking, you know, poor, poor. So for that, it's like basic money management habits are are going to be take them leaps and bounds beyond where they're at. So it's like get a bank account. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, it's like get some uh, education about some basic skills like writing, reading, uh, communication, uh, speaking clearly, like these very basic skills so that you can go, you you know, you're making, you know, $9, $10 an hour right now so that you can actually interview. And to interview, you need to be able to fill out a resume. It's like, you've got to be able to read and write to do that. And there's a lot of people who can't read and write clearly enough to be able to do that. And so literally these basic skills that you can learn online, watching YouTube, uh, free courses online that will get you from $10 an hour to $20 an hour, no problem. Um, Once you're making a little bit more money, you've got a bank account, you've got an address that you don't have to stay at anymore. You're starting to work yourself, uh, work yourself up that the couple bottom rungs of the ladder. You open up a credit card, start, you know, uh, using it like it's a debit card and building a, a, a little credit score. So very basic money management skills that, uh, you know, setting up an actual budget, like mm-hmm. making sure that you say, okay, I'm going to make this much money this month and I'm going to choose where all that money is going to go before the month even starts and then sticking to that basic discipline habits. Um, now, doing that will get you from poor to middle class very, very simply. Um, but it'll st- it, you'll stay middle class if you only do all of that, um, which is fine for a lot of people. I mean, this is you know something that it, you know it's you know kind of like... Uh, individual choice. If that's where you want to be, then that's totally fine. Um, But most people uh, who are in the middle class kind of landed there and uh, stay there by default, even though they don't want to be there. And so they work a job, they load themselves up with debt that was used to buy liabilities, which is like a house that's a little bit more than they can afford. Um, they buy a new car every couple of years. And you mentioned the car payment. That's the average car payment today at 700 bucks is way higher than it was in 2019 at 550 bucks. So that's escalating very quickly here. Um, and again, it's just these, these middle-class habits where you continue to push yourself beyond your means 
um, for liabilities. So you take vacations that you shouldn't be taking. You eat out at restaurants you shouldn't be eating out at. You uh, do renovations to your house you shouldn't be doing. Um, you spend all of your money, all of your time, all of your attention and get all of your debt on things just for pure enjoyment. And it's a drain. And so you have more money coming in, but you've got a lot more money coming out. And the way you know that you're in this, you're stuck in this cycle is ask yourself, if your paycheck got shut off tomorrow, how long could you last? Like you said, most Americans, not even a month. Mm-hmm. Two thirds of Americans right now cannot afford an, um, a, an unexpected $400 expense. Mm-hmm. That is broke. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, that is slavery. You are mm-hmm. a slave to money. You must mm-hmm. live your life in service to money. You are not a master over money at that point. And so, uh, that's an example of living your life for liabilities. And then the next level up is, okay, I'm going to save instead of spending on all these liabilities. I'm going to start buying assets. That might be stocks. That might be cash flowing real estate. That might be gold. That might be Bitcoin. That might be uh, starting a small business on the side as a side hustle. That is an asset that once you learn how to do it, it cash flows. You own a business at that point. Um, And many times it's going to produce much more cash flow than any other asset because you fully control it um, and you know it intimately. And so um, these are all examples of assets that you save up, but not just for the purpose of saving so that you can buy another liability, so you can buy an asset that cash flows that allows you to save more. And then you get more income. You use that to increase the skills of buying assets, of increasing your assets, of increasing your investments. So you start learning about more and more financial literacy. You take business classes if you want to. You take sales classes, marketing classes, you know, product design, whatever it is. Um, and you you start stacking these skills that increase your income, but then you use that extra income to buy assets. And that's what propels you from middle class to wealthy. Mm-hmm. That that was probably the best uh, best uh, example that I've heard so far with that, Joe. That was excellent. I hope people absorb that because what you just described is the key, right? From getting up those three tiers into that upper class, essentially getting to a point where your cash flow, your extra cash flow, which hopefully increases over time because you're not buying liabilities and you have a budget, right? You're purchasing assets, assets that produce cash flow, and then cash flow that you can reinvest into more assets. And these assets are going up with inflation. So even even though eggs and vehicles and everything that everyone complains about is is getting more expensive, If you own assets, all of those are going up. And so your wealth increases with the curve, right, Joe? Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the system is designed to where the money flows up. Because as inflation happens from printing money to deal with all of the debt, because everybody keeps on getting more and more debt, well, that means prices go up. And when prices go up, uh, that means prices of assets go up because what is an asset? An asset is something like a stock. A stock is a business and a business sells stuff. And when the price of stuff goes up, the revenues for the company goes up. And so ultimately over time, if you subtract inflation, and especially if you subtract what we, what many people believe is the true rate of inflation yeah, yeah. from the stock market <laughs> over the last 30 years, the actual growth is close to 0%. Yeah. It's like, most of the number going up is just a result of the new dollars being printed. 
pushing that number up. It's like when you subtract that, there's there's uh, very little growth. And so that's why cash flow is so important because that compensates you then for the, you know, the loss in purchasing power of those dollars. Because if mm-hmm. your if your asset goes your your 401k, let's say goes from a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand. Um, if it costs you a hundred thousand dollars to live right now, and then yep. for a year, let's say, and then in 10 years, your 401k is at two hundred thousand per uh, two hundred thousand dollars, uh, and your cost of living is two hundred thousand dollars a year, you make yep. no money. That's yep. the same amount of purchasing power. So you, you've got to make sure that you actually have an ROI uh, that's in real terms, you know, above inflation. Yeah, I had that conversation with a client a few weeks ago um, with the average person, you know, saving in a 401k only their whole career. They get to that end point, which retirement, which seems like a significant amount of money, <laughs> But it used to be a significant amount of money, right? Because they had that 30-year working career and they put away their 7%, 10%, 15%. But inflation at you know 2 to 7% is offsetting that amount of money, right? And so then they get to retirement and in that one bucket of just the 401k, um, a lot of times is not nearly enough of what they thought it should have been, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, 100%. Exactly. I'm very interested. Why do you think we don't learn about this stuff? The the this the stuff that we're talking about now, Joe, in school, schooling, like uh, great, high school and college, financial education. I know Robert Kiyosaki talks about this a lot. I have my own opinions, but um, w- these kids now they they don't know assets, liabilities, uh, balancing. You know their online bank account, saving, investing, dividends, interest um depreciation all of this stuff i really think you could teach eighth graders why aren't we teaching our kids this stuff yeah um it, it's a good question um I, I think there's a couple different answers and i'll give you my opinion on which one is correct there's always anytime you get the government involved um you're going to screw things up um it's just especially at the scale that we do that in this country. Um, the Anything that the government is involved in tends to be 10 times more expensive and have one-tenth of the positive results mm-hmm. that the free market can produce. So education is a great example of this. The traditional education system in America is one of the worst in the world. It yeah. produces people, it literally all across the nation, we have high schoolers graduating who cannot read. Mm-hmm. My five-year-old daughter can read full books by herself. We have high schooler. I mean, I I have plenty of friends who are teachers. They're high school teachers, senior year. Their biggest struggle is how they can get through the year with Mm -hmm. 20%, 30%, 40% of their graduating class that literally cannot read. How do you teach Mm -hmm. kids that can't read? Mm -hmm. Um, Versus a free market, you say, okay, well, if we privatized education, then all these kids wouldn't have any education, so they'd be worse off. And it's like, well, really? Because ask yourself, is there a free market form of education that costs zero dollars? It's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you have you have you heard of YouTube? Have you heard <laughs> of podcasts? It's like there's a ton of education available that is way higher quality than what you can get in the traditional education system from the government. Um, that uh, uh, is is more effective at producing results. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
that it just comes down to individuals wanting to pursue that education at that point. And so the question is, okay, is that incompetence or is it malevolence? Because um, the there's a theory out there that the reason we don't teach kids basic personal money management skills in school is because the government wants to keep people enslaved to producing tax dollars. Mm-hmm. But that argument, when you follow it through, doesn't really make sense because the richer people are, the more tax dollars there are available for the government to draw on. And sure. so keeping people enslaved in the poor and middle class doesn't necessarily create more wealth for the government to draw on. I am always more inclined to say incompetence over malevolence, because when you look at the disastrous consequences of any government endeavor, usually it's just like there the bureaucracy and the centralization and the incentives do not align to produce good results like 99% of the time. And so the result can be the same between if you have somebody incompetent versus somebody malevolent, the result might be the same. Um, but I think just the sheer incompetence and the difficulty with uh, getting a large number of people to perform an outcome, I would mm-hmm. say it would be, it would be uh, harder to uh, ascribe malevolence because then you have to have somebody really smart and a lot of hardworking people who are all doing something on purpose and then actually achieving that goal. And that coming from the government. Now I'd, pr- I'd probably say it's just a bunch of uh, a bunch of mistakes all stacking up on top of each other. So that's where I'm really excited to see the young people today because they were born into technology. Like they, it is integrated into their psyche. So it is, you know, anybody who is, you know, under 20 years old today is uh, is in the world of technology so deep that it's like they have access to any information they could want. And so uh, I'm not I'm not very concerned about the traditional education system anymore, because to the extent that any individual wants to get ahead with their life, if they want to learn a skill, they want to learn how money works, they want to learn anything, they can do that for free anytime they want. Um, And as the world becomes a little bit of a more difficult place to get ahead financially, you have more and more of an incentive for these kids who are growing up in harder times to learn those skills because they'll have to. They won't be able to get a job. So they'll be like, I have to pay rent. How do I do that? Maybe the the government subsidies are not as uh, meaningful as they used to be because governments start going broke. It's like hard times produce strong people. That's a fact. And so we've got the technology to enable it. We've got the hard times coming that will incentivize it. And so uh, long-term future, I'm very bullish on the young kids today. Um, They've got more access to the knowledge they need than anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I agree with all of that. Um, and that that's an optimistic outlook too. you know, with the kids, like you said, 20 years and younger, all they know is technology. And if they want to become financially literate, they can, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, podcasts, YouTube books, you know, all of that is out there versus, you know, when we were in high school, you know, you had to search, you had to search a little bit harder for answers. Now it's all at their fingertips. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good, uh, nice perspective. I'm very interested. So the debt ceiling was just raised again, no surprise. Um, and I think like 99% of people don't even bat an eye at that. And that's concerning to me. Um, you know, can you explain the implications of continuous money printing? I know we could have a whole separate podcast on that alone, but just a 101 answer on that. The implications of continuous money printing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if it, m- continuous money printing without stopping the 
only result of that is hyperinflation. Yep. Which is an a lot of people think, okay, hyperinflation, that means just prices for one reason or another just continue to go through the roof. Really, what that is, that is uh the value of the currency declining really quickly. So you have to ask, okay, why is the value of the currency declining really quickly like that? Um the price of anything, or I should say the value of anything. Um, well, no, price is information about the value of something relative to everything else. That's what price is. Mm -hmm. So um, supply and demand are going to dictate whether that thing is more or less valuable relative to everything else. Um, so when we look at something that's incredibly abundant, like oxygen, breathable air, it is free. You and I don't have to pay for breathable air. It is free because it is so abundant. But if we go somewhere where breathable air is not abundant, suddenly it costs money, like mm -hmm. scuba diving, mm -hmm. right? You have to pay for air to go underwater um, because it's not abundant there. It's scarce. Um, so if let's say today, uh, all of the wheat just failed. There's no more wheat going forward uh, for a year, um, mm -hmm. except for maybe one farm. The value of that that wheat is going to skyrocket. The price is going to go up because the demand is going to stay relatively constant, uh, but the supply is so much lower that the price will skyrocket as an auction takes place because all prices are just basically real-time auctions continuously uh, to drive that price higher. So somebody like a baker will say, I'll buy the same amount of wheat, like no matter what, because uh, that's my business. So I'm going to, I'll sell the bread at a higher price, but I need to buy the wheat at any price. Whereas somebody else might just say, well, no, the price of wheat went up even 10%. I just won't buy any. And so automatic rationing will take place as the price skyrockets for the people who value it more than valuing anything else. So somebody might buy less water or buy less meat so that they can buy more wheat. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, same thing if you make something infinitely abundant. Like today, if an asteroid of you know 10 pounds of gold, pure gold, landed in everybody's backyard on Earth, the value, the price of gold would go to like zero. Because yep. today, if I have gold, it's relatively scarce. So I have one ounce of it. I can take it anywhere in the world and sell it for $1,900. Mm -hmm. But if gold lands in everybody's backyard and then everybody tries to go do that, it's like, well, I can just get gold from my backyard. I don't need to pay you $1,900 for your gold. I'd rather have my $1,900. And so the abundance or the scarcity of an item relative to everything else determines its value. And the price is how that value is communicated to the market. So when you have money, and that money is just continued to be printed. The supply of money goes up. If the supply of money goes up faster than the supply of everything else, because it's all relative, that means the value of that money will go down. So let's say tomorrow, instantly, we double all the money. Every $1 becomes $2. So if you've got $100 in your bank account, it becomes $200. If your paycheck was $100,000 a year, it becomes $200,000 a year. So every dollar in existence becomes $2. Suddenly, the price of everything also doubles because the supply of everything else stayed exactly the same. And so if the money supply doubles, it's going to take twice the amount of money to get the same amount of stuff that it did before. So as they continue to print money in excess or at a faster pace than the supply of real stuff increases, the value of that money goes down. 
And when you say the value of that money goes down, it just means it takes more of those things to get the other things, more dollars to get the wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why prices go up. That's why they stop printing when inflation starts to hit. So that's mm-hmm. what they're doing right now. If you look at the total supply of money, you can measure this. It's called M2. You can look it up. Um, there's charts of it. It has actually gone down over the last 12 and 13 months. There's okay. less money today in circulation than there was 13 months ago because inflation started to get out of control. And so they said, okay, we need to start decreasing the amount of money. And if we decrease the amount of money, again, let's take it to its extreme to understand this. If the money supply goes to a 10th of what it was before, there's very little money. That means you can't continue buying things at their old prices. There's just not enough money to support mm-hmm. that. And so commerce, in order to continue happening, prices have to come down to adjust mm-hmm. for the new amount of money in the system. So that's what they're trying to do, trying to make prices come down by decreasing the money supply. So there's less money in circulation to support those higher prices. Now, the verdict is still out on how successful they will be, um, but that is what they're doing right now. And so to the extent they continue that, then inflation comes down, deflation happens, prices come down. Um, But if they do start printing again, then prices Mm -hmm. start going back up. So that's a long answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an important answer. Um, One that I feel and many people will have to listen to a few times, right? So feel free to go back and to listen to that again. It's a complicated um, topic, right? To understand that. When your wages from, let's say, your job stay the same, but because we're printing more money and putting more money into circulation, the prices of everything else goes up, you're you're poorer. (laughs) You have less money, less cash flow, because you're spending the same amount that you make that hasn't changed, let's say, to pay for more for more goods. And so... Unlimited printing, um, what do they call it? Modern monetary theory, right? Where they they believe in like almost unlimited printing. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I think, again, I think it'll benefit the rich, right? Long-term for sure. But the poor and middle class won't be able to keep up with that because their wages won't keep up with that. Does Does that make sense, Joe? Is that, would you agree with that? Yes. So if you look at the last three years, um, Every, you know, couple of months you watch, I've, I've watched the statistics every couple of months for the last couple of years. And um, the reports always show wages going up. Wages yep. have been going up for the last few years. So anybody ask, you know, look at your paycheck, ask your friends. Everybody has gotten raises. Everybody's income is much higher today than it was in 2019. That is mm-hmm. a fact. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not everybody, but for most people. Um what you'll also notice is that on average, the pay increases were less than mm-hmm. the inflation rate. And so every month it's like, okay, inflation this month was 7%, which means prices on average are 7% higher this month than they were last year, this same month. Wages on average went up 5%. So you have 5% more money in your paycheck this year than you did exactly one year ago. Um the difference between that is 2%. That means prices increased more than your wages did, which means that you are worse off. Yes, you have more money, but it takes you even more money than that to make ends meet. And so most people you ask today, they're making more money than they were three years ago by many times a big margin. And it's harder to afford their cost of living than it was a couple of years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And so the that that's called real. When you adjust for inflation, uh, you're, you're, if you get a $10,000 raise, that's nominal. But if your expenses went up by $12,000, you adjust, you had a real $2,000 increase in your cost of living, um, mm-hmm. or in other words, a 2% pay cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, and that, you know, if people owned more cash flow producing assets, inflation isn't as much of a concern, right? Um, but if you're stuck on that employee um, paycheck that isn't keeping up, your dollars buy less. And over time, that's very stressful for people. Um, what is your viewpoint on digital currency? And when do you see this rolling out? Can you steel man uh, digital currency? And uh, what are the negatives? Yes. Okay. But I, I I do want to comment on what you said uh, before that, though, um, about the cash flowing assets, because that's 100% true. And I think it's really important to understand how money works its way throughout the economy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give a 30 second spiel about this. Mm-hmm. New money is printed. The first thing that happens is asset prices get hit. So monetary policy, whether it's inflation or deflation always hits assets first. Mm -hmm. After it hits assets, then it hits goods and services, Mm -hmm. then it hits wages. That is the path that monetary policy works throughout the economy. So when they started printing money in 2020, what happened? Real estate and stock prices skyrocketed through the roof immediately. It wasn't until a year later that inflation hit goods and services. It was a year later, it was March of 2021, when inflation finally got above two and a half percent again. And so it took a year for it to hit goods and services. It took even longer for then that new money to work its way through uh, people quitting their jobs, through Mm -hmm. uh, revenues increasing, for people getting mad at corporations for taking bigger profits, and then people saying, I'm going to quit my job if you don't give me a pay raise. After all that, then it starts to hit wages. By the time wages are adjusted upwards, they've already been paying a lot more for their stocks and they've already been paying a lot more for their groceries. And so when you have monetary policy work its way throughout society like that, it's like, okay, well, I need to get on the other side of the fence then. I need to start buying assets as as quickly as I can so that the monetary policy benefits me instead of impacting me negatively. Yeah, um, I I never knew that, Joe. I, I never knew that's how that that's the trickle down effect. That that's an mm. eye opener for me. That is really, really cool. And that makes so much sense. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. And the reason why is because markets are forward looking. So markets anticipate companies are going to have, have bigger profits as a result of this new money. So big money buys the assets. Well, all that buying drives the prices up. So they immediately pop. Um, and so those asset prices respond first. And then obviously it works its way throughout the economy. So there's the auction process that pushes the goods and services higher. And then mm-hmm. people start negotiating for better wages and better pay. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a logical path. And when you follow it, that's exactly what happens when you track that through history. Number one, that's a theory that makes sense. And then number two, it shows up empirically as well when you watch uh, the, the watch the path of price movements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so CBDCs. Yeah, digital currency. And and you can throw, uh, I guess, Bitcoin in there too. You know, I'm, I'm interested. We're sort of clumped this all as one. So yeah, digital currency. You're, you're, how do you see this rolling out? Um, can you provide any positives for it, Steel Mana? And then what are the negatives? Because it's coming. I, I would be surprised if it's not here um, three to five years, maybe sooner. Um, so so what, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there are two types of monetary systems that we're talking about when we say digital money. Um, there's four types of monetary systems possible total. 
One of them is commodity money. So thousands of years ago, you have a gold coin, you buy stuff with that actual gold coin. That's commodity money. Fast forward to just a couple hundred years ago, you have commodity backed money, the second type of monetary system. So it's the ownership of that commodity that's traded as money. So that's represented by a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, it says redeemable for coin uh, in gold. So if you look at a $20 bill from 100 years ago, it said redeemable on demand for one ounce of gold. And so um, that is commodity backed money. The ownership of that gold is trading hands as money, but the gold itself stays in the vault. Um, then you have a uh, ledger. Uh, you have private ledger based money. So a ledger is a list. It's an Excel spreadsheet with a list of all the accounts and uh, the amount of money in each of those accounts. And then a list of all the transactions that shows where that money came from uh, mm -hmm. all the way back to the beginning of that list. Um, that's what banks have. Bank, uh, bank money today is ledger money. So every bank has its own ledger. And then the central bank has its own ledger, which is the money that the banks have with the central bank, because the central bank is just a bank for all the banks. And so there are a bunch of different private ledgers. They're just lists of all the accounts with uh, a record of how much money is in them, and then a record of all the transactions. And so that is the system, the main monetary system we have today. There is public ledger money as well, which is most commonly known as Bitcoin, which is, hey, this is a list of money that everybody can see. Like you can't go to Chase or Bank of America and say, let me see all the accounts and how much money is in all the accounts. It's like, no, it's private. And because it's private, they have all your information. They've got your date of birth. They've got your financial history. They've got your, uh, you know, they know the color of your eyes and, you know, they send it all to the government every day. And so when you look at a public ledger money, it's pseudonymous which means that it's like your name's not on there. Um, but if somebody really wanted to, they could find out it's you. And that's how the FBI and the CIA does it. Uh, they just they you know track IP addresses and stuff. Um, so it's not anonymous, but it's pseudonymous, um, like a pseudonym for like a ghostwriter. So um, you, have, uh, you, you have a list of all of the accounts. That's the Bitcoin wallets, addresses. And it has the uh, amount of money in them represented by Bitcoin. Um, and then a list of all the transactions all the way back to the very first transaction of Bitcoin. It's just a list. And so, but this one is a public list. So it's controlled and viewed publicly by anybody who wants to be a part of the network. Um, right now we are witnessing a transition away from uh, the monetary system that we have today controlled by the US dollar, which is uh, a, a, a private ledger. There are many countries around the world that do not want to be participants in this monetary system anymore. You've got mm -hmm. the BRICS nations like Brazil, Russia, mm -hmm. India, China, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. They're all talking about creating a new form of money for international trade that would go back to a commodity-backed money. Not a commodity money, a commodity-backed money. So a money that is redeemable for gold, oil, other commodities. Mm -hmm. You have some countries uh, and some individuals who are advocating for public ledger money like Bitcoin. So you've got El Salvador on a Bitcoin standard. You've got many Nigerians, which is going to be the biggest country in the world soon um, that are uh, trying to fully use Bitcoin because their government's money is so bad. Um, so you've got many places around the world where people are advocating for public ledger money. You also have uh, a new thing that people are talking about called a central bank digital currency, a CBDC. Um, all this is, is one step up from our current fiat system, which is a private ledger money. Right now, we've got every bank has their own ledger. A CBDC, a central bank digital currency, is just merging those all into one big ledger at the central bank. And so it eliminates the needs for you to have a bank account with all the different banks 
you just have one account with the central bank. Um, and so it would operate very, very similarly to the way money works today. Like most people would not notice a difference. Maybe you have to use the Fed's wallet app instead of your Chase app. Uh, but ultimately, it's like dollars go in, dollars come out. You use a debit card, you use your, you know, your Apple Pay for transactions. Like it's pretty much uh, in day-to-day -day usage is going to be um, uh, very similar to what we have today. So I'll steal man first, and then I'll destroy it. <laughs> <Since you're asking laughs> steel man. The steel man is that um, number one, we get away from an archaic system that we have today that's built on debt and has many limitations built into it that uh, do not allow us to participate in the digital age. We have uh, transactions that take months to settle versus Bitcoin settles instantly. Um, you have transactions that can be reversed. Uh, you have transactions that can be stopped. International payments cost a ton of money and take two days to show up in the other account. So you've got all of these problems. Number two, you have problems with uh, delays in being able to enable uh, policy. So uh, imagine we have another 2020 scenario and they need to send out stimulus checks. Mm -hmm. Well, it took months for the IRS to actually write all those checks. If everybody has an account with the Fed, the Fed can just click one button and give everybody a thousand bucks. You also had issues where people said, uh, you know, people got multiple checks because they were, you know, claiming they were dead people or they were able to file multiple times. And so you had people that were abusing the system. But the thing about a private ledger is that since it's private and nobody can see it, all the information about the person is there. And so they've got your social security number. They've got your date of birth. They've got your history. They've got your address. They know this is you. You've got only one account and they know you're not replicated somewhere else in the system because they have all the accounts. It's not like you have two accounts at two banks and they don't know you have an account with the other bank. And so because of that, they can stop the abuse of the, of the system. Number three, uh, tax evaders. So you've got people who are cheating the system. And by cheating, I don't mean using the legal loopholes that Congress gave to us to incentivize mm -hmm. certain behaviors for the good of the country. I'm talking about um, illegal behavior where people just say, I'm going to work under the table and not report my legal income and not pay any taxes. And so legally speaking, they're, you know, breaking the law and not paying their taxes. So if you have everybody who has to have an account with the central bank, you eliminate that from happening because the federal reserve can just say, okay, we know you made this much money because all the money comes in through here and out of here. So we know exactly how much money you made. We know exactly how much money you owe. We're just going to debit that from your account. Very easy, very simple. You eliminate the need to pay the government to pay for the IRS. You eliminate the need for all that bureaucracy. You eliminate the need for many CPAs and tax filing businesses because suddenly it's all done automatically. And uh, all that brain power, because it's a lot of very smart people, very hardworking people can go towards value producing uh, areas of the economy where they can start to work on uh, things that actually create uh, new wealth instead of just helping people figure out how much wealth they need to send to the government to waste it. And so um, you have a lot of areas of the government that are freed up from bureaucracy and cost and expense, and you get a more digital money for the digital age that works better, works faster, um, and uh, they can act in real time uh, according to needs. Mm -hmm. So that's the steel man. Sounds mm -hmm. like, you know, we're not going to really notice that much difference other than it's going to be more convenient for us, really. Um, and if the government wants to give me money, then they can do it faster, right? So a lot of people would be like, ah, that sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the problem. With a central bank digital currency, you have complete control of the currency. Money is half of everything that happens. 
So anytime an exchange takes place, which exchange is most of what happens, like you go out on a date with your wife, you go to the bar with your friends, you plan a vacation, you go to work all day and trade your time for money. Money is the opposite side of everything that happens. So it's 50%. It's it it's it's half of the thing that happens um, of everything in life. You look back at communist countries, you look back at uh, totalitarian governments who want to control, it's all about controlling the flow of resources. Mm -hmm. So instead of allowing individuals to choose, hey, if I want to give you some steel, you want to give me some oil, we want to give you some money for that resource, whatever, and then we're going to do whatever we want from it. They look at this and say, we're smarter. So you have then control of all of the resources and the flow of resources because you control the money. If you can control the money, you control what's on the other side of that transaction. And so you don't need all these boards and agencies and committees who are deciding we're going to send wood over here. We're going to send steel over here. We're going to send oil over here. We're going to change the cost of this, change the price of this. No, you eliminate the need for all of that. You can control the entire system, the economy, which is everything just by controlling the money. The CBDC represents full control over the money, meaning it represents full control over everything. It mm -hmm. represents full control over all human action. Um, and you might say, okay, well, that's not a big deal as long as they don't abuse that control. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Technically speaking, as long as they don't use that power, then that's not necessarily a, ba a, a bad thing, a big deal. But when we look at history, we can see that the more power somebody has, the more they will use that power for their own benefit, number one. Number two, the more their information about how to use that power is corrupted. And so when you look at the people who get closer, like the, the dictators of more steep control totalitarian countries, the information they receive becomes more and more corrupted because the more and more power that person has, the more fearful people are of either giving the wrong information or giving information that will not make that uh, dictator happy. And so will influence them to uh, negatively uh, impact the person who gave them that bit, that, uh, that information. And so the flow of information gets corrupted, which means that they are now necessarily making decisions based on information that is wrong. And if you're controlling everything based on information that is incorrect, you are going to make disastrous mistakes that will lead to the implosion of the system. Number two, Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. There is no chance that they don't use it for their own benefit, even if that benefit is just to stay in power. It's like the government is going to put somebody new in power over the central bank digital currency unless I control the CBDC to benefit the government. And if I'm benefiting a certain party to the detriment of the rest of the system, then again, that's a disastrous mistake that will lead to the collapse of the system. So ultimately, you want to get like philosophical on this. It comes down to um, the idea of uh, Jesus uh, is uh, in the Bible represented as the king of kings. So he's represented as 
the power that is above all human powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's three traits that uh, that Jesus has, which is sinless. So never does anything immoral or incorrect or wrong. Number two is all knowing. So he has all of the correct information. And then number three, um, all powerful. And so he has full control over actually everything. And so the, there's this idea that the only way to have a power that can exercise full dominion over uh, mankind is if you're all knowing, sinless and all powerful. Well, just because you can control the economy doesn't mean you can control black markets. You actually can't control people's thoughts and minds and intentions and actions outside of the anything they do with the money. So they don't have full control. They definitely don't have perfect information and they absolutely don't have perfect morals. Therefore, it's designed to fail. So I don't think it will succeed long-term, but there will be pain while it exists. And they're testing this in China, right? And I think it has, what is it, like a 13% buy-in? Like it's not going too well in China. Have you seen that? Yes, which I was very surprised to see and very happy to see that people do not like using it. It's not any better than the free market alternatives. Um, And so there's been very little buy-in despite the monetary incentives to try and get people to use it. Same Mm -hmm. story in Nigeria, same story, many places where they're trying to push this. People don't want it, which is a very good thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I've been I've been happy to see that myself. Um, we've got a few more minutes here, Joe. I could spend a lot more time with on these questions, but I'm just trying to get through. I have I have a few more things I want to get to, but then we're sure. we'll finish up here. So um we had a, a listener, a fan of yours. Um, they sent me an email. Um, they're a member with the gym. They wanted to know your your um opinion on this. Is investing in gold and silver for the average person a smart choice? And if so, what percent of your net worth would you recommend? And so obviously this is hypothetical. I know there's a thousand different examples we could give with this average person, right? Um, But just a a 101 version of how you would answer that. Yes, I would answer that by questioning what money and savings is. And so when you look back at time, we see there's lots of different forms of money. And sometimes the form of money that's being used, like the government money, is not a good form of savings, meaning the purchasing power goes down over time. Mm -hmm. So the question really is, how should I save? Uh, For most of human history, savings or money was gold, and gold preserves its purchasing power for thousands of years. It's the same uh, value. The purchasing power of gold for thousands of years has either gone up slightly from technological improvements in the good, making that good cheaper, or it stayed the same for things that have not gotten cheaper. And so gold is a good form of savings. It's not an investment. It will not make you rich. It will not make you money. It'll just preserve your purchasing power over a long period of time. It is volatile though. And so when you are going to be looking at gold as a savings vehicle, you need to have a little bit of a long-term time horizon, you know, at least a couple of years because it can be Mm -hmm. volatile. And, uh, but so can the dollar, right? The dollar can go down in value, just like we saw over the last couple of years. So same thing there. So you're looking at it as a form of savings, not an investment, number one. Number two, when I'm looking at a form of savings, I'm saying, okay, I need to preserve my purchasing power. Why? So I can be able to make it through hard times. My income slows down or stops so that I can be able to buy assets when they're cheap. And so for that allocation, I think a quarter of a percent, or or, I'm sorry, uh, 25% to 33%, you know, a quarter to a third of your allocation in savings is a smart allocation for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my opinion, gold is a good form of savings and so should comprise, you know, a portion at least of that savings, probably not all of it, 
Bitcoin dollars as well. Um, Mm -hmm. High Mm -hmm. yield debt Mm -hmm. is also used as savings. Like if you save a dollar in a bank account, that's not a dollar, that's debt. That dollar turns into debt, it's loaned out. So when you save a dollar, you're not saving a dollar, you're investing in debt. Um, And so, yeah, all of that, that's a very, you know, a a lot packed into the answer. But I think that buying gold as a savings vehicle is a good choice for people. And I like, you know, at least a quarter to a third of my money in savings, which gold is going to be a part of. Okay, so you're saying a quarter of your savings, um, approximately a quarter of your savings in gold and silver, let's say. So if a, someone has um, 10000 in savings, you're saying about 2500 of that would be smart to be in precious metals, right? You're not talking uh, about You're no, talking savings. Not- uh, no, I'm talking. So if you've got a uh, hundred thousand dollars in investable assets, I'm okay. not talking like you know, I'm not talking full net worth because of your house and all of that. But I'm talking if you got a hundred thousand dollars in investable assets, yep. I like to have a quarter to a third in savings. Um, sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so that'd be you know, let's say twenty five to thirty thousand dollars in savings, and it's up to individuals to choose, you know, I keep a good portion of that in gold, some of that in cash, some of that in Bitcoin. I don't like silver for this. I like to invest in silver for speculation, but not for, not for savings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and so of your investable assets, you know, a quarter in savings, let's say, and some of that, or most of that might be gold. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great. Um, so what is the 10 year vision with your company? I'm very curious as a mm-hmm. entrepreneur, I'm interested to see where you're headed with this thing. That's, that's a good question. Um, my, so I, this comes down to, I think kind of a, a difference between entrepreneurial styles. Like there are, it seems like from the people that I've studied, there's one group of people that says, okay, in you know five or 10 or 20 years, I want to kind of have this size or this type of thing built that's you know participating in this large vision. And then I'll backtrack from there and see, okay, what do I need to do today that will kind of get me there? The other half is like, um, these are the, you know, the, the habits or the actions or the uh, things I want to be participating in. And I'm going to try and turn that into a business and then it evolves over time. And so like Oakley is a good example of this. They, the, they started off making motorcycle uh, handle grips and they were just like, you know, good at that. And they just started doing more and more stuff in that area. And it's evolved to something very different today, which is mostly like sunglasses mm-hmm. and, you know, some active wear. And um, I I tend to fall into that boat. It's like my vision and my goal and what I like to do is to educate people about how money works. And right now, the best way to do that for me is by, you know, doing it all for free on YouTube um, and, you know, kind of uh, evolve from there. So I do have a podcast now. I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. Um, I started doing online courses as well. And so I'm kind of evolving. Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't be able to answer that question about what do I want it to look like in 10 years? I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I guess we'll have to see when it gets here. Uh, yeah, I love that answer. And actually I, I take a similar approach. Like I would say five plus years ago, I would have personally been able to answer that 10 year question. Cause that's how I was viewing like long-term play. Right. But I'm taking the same perspective as you now with um, sort of the systems and who I want to be and then see where that takes the company and the brand versus mm-hmm. focus on that end goal, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's just what you're doing because like the fitness industry, the health industry is, is pivoting, it's changing, right? All the time. So you're absolutely right. The finance industry, 10 years from now, we could have um, artificial intelligence robots running around, everything central bank digital currency, a third of the people are unemployed because they're on, um, you know, universal basic income. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's absolutely. Great. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, well, we said an hour and we're rated right an hour. So I want to respect that, Joe. Um, how can listeners learn more about Heresy Financial and follow all the good work that you're doing? Um, I am on pretty much every major social media platform. So if you're on Twitter, I tweet you know, a couple times a day. If, if you're on TikTok or Instagram, I throw up short vertical videos there. Um, I put up my main content on YouTube. I have a video every day there. And then I do a weekly podcast episode as well. So I'm Heresy Financial everywhere. You can just search for me and it'll pop up. Awesome. We will link to all of that, Joe, in the show notes. So for people listening, um, I recommend checking out the good work you're doing. I follow your YouTube channel. I learn a lot from it. Um, I think this is a topic that more people need to be paying more attention to. And then I think the whole rest of their life can get in uh, in more order. So thank you for what you're doing, Joe. Thank you very much for having me. It was a good time.